Let's hear God's word now. Our first reading from Job 19:23 to 29. Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 29. This is the very word of God, so let's give it all our attention now. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. In our sermon text, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 28. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself also will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Lord, you have caused all holy scripture to be written for our instruction. We pray now that you would grant us to to hear your word and read it and mark it and learn it and inwardly digest it. That we might be built up in Christ and strengthened in faith. And hold fast to the hope of everlasting life which you've given us in our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Can dead people live again? 
someone who's been dead a long time. And they come back to life. Christianity teaches that some 2,000 years ago that happened. A dead man came back to life. He was crucified by Roman soldiers. They verified his death. He was, they were sure he was dead. They put him in a tomb, rolled a stone in front of it, sealed it shut, put a guard there to protect anyone from stealing the body. And yet, three days later, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. The stone is rolled away. And of course, this is Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christianity teaches that Jesus is alive, Jesus is raised from the dead, and that all those who trust in Christ will also one day be raised bodily from the dead. The church in Corinth was having a hard time with this doctrine. Paul's been writing to them about various things they've been struggling with and uh, various issues in their church. And in chapter 15, towards the end of this long letter to the Corinthian church, he addresses this most important of all issues. They were doubting the resurrection. Not necessarily the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of believers. In their culture, uh, the body was thought of as an inherently kind of negative thing. Bodies were bad, but body meant you had limits. Right? So death was looked at as, as you know, your soul is set free from that, that, that prison. And so they didn't necessarily want a bodily resurrection. But Paul's point, of course, is as if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you are denying the resurrection of Christ himself. So they were having a hard time believing this doctrine. It just didn't fit with their culture. What about us? What about our culture? A lot of people hear this idea, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's just ludicrous. Dead people don't rise. All right, that's one of the certainties of life. Death and taxes and, and dead people. Resurrection isn't in that list. Right? Everyone dies. Every single human being who's ever lived has died. And they don't come back to life. That's just how it is. That's what our culture says. What do you think? Think of how impossible it is, right? This is what our culture would say. How, How impossible it is for every single body of every single person who's ever lived thousands of years on, hundreds of years on, to be raised up from the dead, their, their, their physical bodies reconstituted? How could that be possible? As Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit to the church in Corinth, your loved ones, he is saying to them, it doesn't matter what the culture says about this doctrine of the resurrection. You have to believe this doctrine of the resurrection. This is the heart and center of Christianity. This is the beating heart of it. You take this out, Christianity is a cold, lifeless, dead thing without this doctrine. And it's a rock-solid truth. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we have to to hold fast to this, loved ones. And it's true, and it's um, it's also absolutely essential to us that our hearts are set on the hope of the resurrection, that, that our hearts are filled with the hope that Christ has been raised and that we also will be raised with him. As Paul works through his argument here, he, does, he works through it in two sections. First, he, he lays out the consequences for the Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, here's what that means. And that's our first heading, if Christ is not raised, verses 12 to 19. If it broke on the news this week that a tomb was discovered in Palestine and they identified the body somehow as Jesus of Nazareth, what would that mean to you? What would the impact of that be, be to you? 
You can say, well, that's never going to happen. Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, so that's, that's a ridiculous question. That's true, it is. But just for the sake of argument, this is what Paul is doing as well here. Just imagine, if Christ is not raised from the dead, what does that mean? Paul lays out the consequences. Number one, verse 14. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is empty. By his preaching here, Paul means the content of his preaching, the gospel that he's been declaring. The gospel message is empty. It's a sham that he's been peddling if Christ is not raised from the dead. The word he uses here means in vain, empty. It's something that's utterly worthless, right? It's when you put all kinds of effort into something and it turns out to be just a waste of your time. Now, once I was... Uh, doing some work for my dad. He's a builder, and I was doing some painting for him. And um, it was, a, it was a painting the crown molding around, around a room, so I couldn't get the paint on the ceiling, and I couldn't get the paint on the wall. I had to get the line just right. And I spent, you know, I, I, I worked really hard to get the line nice and clean all the way around the room. And by the time I finished, I realized it was the wrong paint. Right? Empty. In vain. Worthless. Waste of time. Couldn't build a customer. Had to go do the whole thing again. Right? Paul's saying our preaching is an empty waste of our time if, if Christ is not raised. A waste, a worthless. The gospel has nothing in it if Christ is not raised. And everything Paul's been through, right? The shipwrecks, the stonings, the whippings, the rejection by his own people, persecution he suffered, all a waste if Christ is not raised. Second thing he says, if Christ has not been raised, he says we're guilty of misrepresenting God. We're bearing false witness against God. He says God himself is telling us that, that uh, Paul's message is that God has raised Christ from the dead. And if that's not true, we're lying about God. We're breaking God's law. We're, we're saying something that's true. Uh, we're saying something that's false about God and saying it's true. We're misrepresenting God if Christ has not been raised. Third thing, he says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is empty and you're still in your sins. An empty faith is a faith in something that's not trustworthy. It's a faith in something that, is, that has no, uh, no real content to it, right? It's like thinking you have a full bank account when you are actually deeply in debt, right? There, there's nothing there. You're trusting in something, but it's empty. And Paul's saying, if your faith in Christ is not in the risen Christ, then it's empty. There's nothing there. If Christ is not raised, he says, you're still in your sins. You're still under the wrath and curse of God if Christ is not raised. Every single one of your sins still counts against you if Jesus is not alive. You're not forgiven. You're not counted righteous. Uh, uh, sins reign and rule and power over you is not broken. You're still a slave. You don't have a new heart. You don't have a new spirit within you. Just the same old sinful self you've always had. If Jesus is not raised, you're going to die in your sins without any hope at all, Paul's saying. Why is that the case? Well, because Christ's resurrection is his vindication. It's, it's, it's his justification. Right? As God raises Jesus from the dead, he says he's, he's righteous, he's innocent. He was paying for the sins of his people, not his own sins. And I'm justifying him. I'm, I'm saying he's righteous, declaring him to be, as he truly is, righteous. A dead Christ is a condemned Christ. Christ that stays in the tomb is a Christ that cannot justify anyone else. 
because he was a sinner. That's what's the case if Christ is not raised. And then he says, fourth thing, if Christ is not raised, verse 18, he says, if Christ is not raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is the the, the favorite way of the early Christians to refer to death. They refer to it as falling asleep, which is a wonderful picture. It's not just a polite way to talk. It's not just a euphemism about death for them, but it's a real picture for them of, of what they thought about death. That, that it was uh, that, that, that dying for the Christian isn't a judgment, but it's like falling asleep. Like your soul goes to be with God and your body rests, as our catechism says, as in your bed, in Christ, resting. Your body waits there until Christ comes and, and raises you again. Right? It's like, um, it's like it's, it's sleep is a welcome rest after a hard day's work. In a sense, that's what death is for the Christian. Going to sleep. Your work is done. Going to Jesus. That's how they saw death, the early church, falling asleep. But Paul says, if you are, you know, if Christ is not raised, then death is not falling asleep. Death is death. Falling asleep implies you're going to wake up. But if Christ is not raised, your body is not going to rise again. You're dead, and that's it. This hope also is in Vain. He says, those who have died have perished. They're not sleeping. They're really and truly dead. And so your loved ones, believers in Corinth, he's saying, who were trusting in Christ and died, no, you're not going to see them again if Christ is not raised. And then Paul brings all of this to a conclusion in verse 19. He says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If my hope in Christ, the sum of all this is, if my hope in Jesus Christ is only good for this life here and now, then I am the most pitiable person, the most pathetic person. Right, because the Christian life isn't a noble, worthwhile life without that resurrection at the end. It's a, it's a life of uh, suffering and serving and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ. And so if there's no resurrection, what a terrible way to live, Paul's saying. You're the all men most to be pitied if Christ is not raised from the dead. We're just the laughingstock of the world if he's still in the tomb. Some of it all then. If Christ is not raised, death is still king. If Christ is not raised, we're slaves to our sin and we're slaves to death with no hope of escape. Heaven is shut to us forever and we're all bound for hell. That's the message. If Christ is not raised. And then Paul says, but. It's a glorious but, isn't it? One of those those times in Scripture where Paul turns and he says, but now, Christ Telling us the gospel. Christ is risen from the dead. He's brought us through this this imaginary uh, look at what it would be like if Christ is not raised. And now he turns our attentions to the glorious truth of what it means for us that Christ, in fact, is raised. So our second heading, but now Christ is raised. Paul starts here with the sheer fact of the resurrection. He states it out. Christ is risen, he says. 
This is to remind us that he's not just saying, um, this, you know, this, is a, this is a worldview we can't live with, so we're going to live with this one instead because we like it better. No, he's saying this is what's true. Christ is risen. That's the ground for all this. It's a claim that he doesn't uh, develop right here, but he already did earlier in the chapter before, before the section we read this morning. He already said back in verse 4 of this chapter that Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. So that's where he's grounding his faith. God's authoritative word says Christ will be raised and he was raised. That's the foundation of Paul's hope. God himself has said it. God cannot lie. Christ is raised. God himself says so. And then he goes on to tell us in verses 5 to 7 of this chapter that there are hundreds of eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ that he rose from the dead and he appeared to the 12 disciples and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. And, and Paul says, some of them are still alive. You can go down, track them down and talk to them and ask them what they saw and ask them what he said to them. And, and he's saying, right, all these people saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Are 500 people going to hallucinate the same thing? Or, or, or is the early church going to, going to be formed at all if there's no risen Christ? Right, you see the early church, right, as Christ dies, you see the disciples, they're cowering, they're afraid, they're hiding in the upper room. They're in no place to go out and promote a lie and die for it. They're terrified, they're broken. Only a risen Christ explains the explosive growth of the early church. Paul's saying, the resurrection of Christ is an absolute fact. It happened. Attested to uh, over 500 people. Um, and shown by the growth of the early church and, and confirmed by the authoritative word of God. So what does it mean? Christ is alive. What's it mean for us? How does it change me? We see two, two reasons here that Paul draws out. First, verses 20 to 23. Paul here tells us that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection if you're trusting in him. So if he rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead as well. Your body is going to rise from the dead, just like his. Paul uses a farming metaphor to explain this here. He says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep in verse 20. So the first fruits, that's the first produce from a crop that you get. Uh, It tells you that the rest of the harvest is coming. It says, here's this first bit and the rest is going to come as well. What does that mean then for the resurrection? Well, it's saying that Paul isn't talking about the resurrection as two separate things. There's Christ's isolated event, resurrection, 33 AD, and then there's the resurrection of all the believers much further down the road. It's one harvest, one resurrection, one great end-time harvest of resurrection. Jesus is the first, and the rest will follow. We see other resurrections in Scripture. As a child, this always confused me. Why is Jesus called the first fruits of the resurrection when there are other people raised from the dead before him? Elijah in the Old Testament raises the widow's son. Elisha does something very similar. Jesus himself raises, uh, raises Lazarus. How come they're not the first fruits of the resurrection to come? Well, their bodies are restored to them, their lives restored to them, but they're going to die again. Right? They're not part of their, that resurrection that they experience. is isn't part of this great end-time resurrection of, of, of unending life, everlasting life. No, Christ is the one, the first one, who's raised up with that new, glorified, resurrected body never to die again. 
the first fruits of the end time resurrection that's coming. And so what we can draw from this, loved ones, what we can take from this truth for our hearts is that uh, Jesus' resurrection emphatically declares to us that our resurrection has already begun. That, that this great end-time harvest of resurrection, it's already started in Jesus Christ. And if it's started, it's going to be finished. That as Jesus was raised in glorious new resurrection life, I will be also. Guaranteed. It's already begun. It's a great comfort there. It's not just that Christ's resurrection, though, is the first fruits of the resurrection that we will enjoy, but it's also what has produced that. It's not just that his is the first example of a great end-time resurrection. It's also that his resurrection is what is causing the, the, the resurrection of the rest of us. Paul says, verses 21-22, he says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul points us to Adam, the old man, the representative head of the old, fallen, sinful, dead humanity, the man who fell in sin and brought with him the whole human race into sin in the Garden of Eden. Because in Adam, everyone dies, but there's a new Adam now. Christ, the true and better Adam, as we sang earlier, this, this one who has uh, perfectly obeyed God, this record of righteousness that he gives us, this new representative who has come and who didn't break the covenant and who lives forever, right? Who, who by, his, by his obedience and faithfulness, he has earned this resurrection life that we enjoy. The point, loved ones, is that uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection is not just his resurrection. It's the resurrection of everyone who trusts in him. One writer says, when Christ rose, the church rose from the dead. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ rose. And if I trust in him, I'm made alive, and my body itself will be made alive at the last day with him. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a glorious promise. We'll live forever with Christ because of Christ. When's it going to happen? Paul says, not yet. Wait. Be patient. Christ is the first fruits. The full harvest is coming. Be patient for it. Can we be sure of this? Right? It sounds like a glorious thing. Sounds too good to be true. That our very bodies will be raised up and will live forever with Christ. Can we be sure? We write, it's been a long time since Christ was raised from the dead. Where's the harvest? Paul says, yes, we have absolute certainty in this because Christ's resurrection is not only the first fruits, but his resurrection is also his inauguration as king. It's the beginning of his reign as, as king. And if his kingdom has begun with the resurrection, it will conclude with it as well. Verses 24 to 28 lay this out for us. Paul is giving us a second reason here why Christ's resurrection changes our lives. Not only is it the guarantee of our resurrection, but also his resurrection begins his reign as king. And if he's begun that kingdom, he's going to finish that kingdom and bring it in all its glorious consummation. He points our attention to the end 
of all things in verses 24 to 28. Uh, the end date that God has set when all the enemies of God's people will be crushed and defeated forever. He quotes Psalm 8, applying it to Jesus Christ, that all things are going to be placed under his feet. He's going to reign over all creation. Um, it's, a, it's a really vivid image, this idea of, of the enemies of Christ being placed under his feet. Picture that. There's a, there's a nice picture of this in the book of Joshua. Joshua leads the uh, Israelites into the promised land. They're fighting their enemies. They defeat this coalition of kings. And Paul, uh, Joshua has his, his, the leaders of his army place their feet on the necks of these defeated kings to show them God is king and he's going to lay all your enemies in the dust just like these kings. Under your feet, powerless to do any harm to you. And that's what Jesus is doing, his feet on the necks of his enemies. And Paul says, the last enemy, the final enemy, which he's going to do that to, which he's going to crush underfoot, is death itself. He's going to place his foot on the neck of death and crush out his life forever. And it will be eradicated and gone forever. And his kingdom will be brought in all its fullness at that moment. And all its eternal life and peace for his people. And he'll present that kingdom to God. Uh, and God's gracious reign of peace will extend over all his people, over the new creation forever and ever. So, loved ones, all this is what Easter means. All this is what the resurrection of Christ means. Bring, bring, this, bring this home to your heart. You need the resurrection. You need the resurrection of Christ and the promise of yours in Christ. What does it mean that he's alive? It means that you also will live with him forever and ever. Uh, it means, as we saw, right, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then, then my life is empty and, and, and worthless and, and uh, a waste of time. But, but Jesus is alive, so don't live like your life is that way. It's not meaningless and empty and a waste of time. Christ is risen, and you'll live forever with him, and everything you do matters because of that. Don't live as though Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Don't, don't live in your sin. That's the way to live if Christ isn't raised. But he's raised. You're not in your sin. Sin has no hold on you any longer. The gospel is not empty because Christ is alive. So loved ones, turn your hearts to Christ and see in him the, the glorious hope that you have. We sang these words earlier, uh, but they're fitting uh, to, to close here. The words from the hymn. Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death, thy sting, is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. So put all your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live according to the truth that he's been raised from the dead. And you also will be raised with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the risen Lord Jesus and the glories of what it means for us that he is alive. And we pray that we would live according to that knowledge, that you would continue to, to, to keep us in Christ. 
And we look forward and long for the day when we will join with him in resurrected life forever in glory. In that hope, we commit ourselves to you. Amen.